Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Today is Carpedia Group's International Vice President, Andrew Rush. Carpedia Group International is a management consulting firm based out of Oakville, Ontario. It is the unique in the consulting world committed to improving KPIs for their clients by a specific amount and on average generate greater than three to one ROI as a result of their engagements. They're true to their slogan of results, not reports. Andrew has a history of improving financial results through optimizing the collaboration of teams and developing more effective senior leaders focusing on their culture, behaviors required to be successful. Andrew started his career with Carpedia in 1997 as a consultant and stayed until 2001. From there, he went on to lead various companies in the building materials, aluminum and construction industries as vice president of operations, vice president of sales, general manager and president. Andrew held leadership positions in companies with 25 to 1200 employees in unionized and non-unionized environments for both publicly traded firms and privately held firms and he returned to Carpedia in 2017. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us on the Second Command podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to really diving into this. You've got some really unique areas that we can glean some um, some insights and some expertise from. And normally I don't jump right into what the company does, but I think it makes sense to start with kind of the core of what Carpedia is, and then we'll work kind of outwards and around from there. So Carpedia is a management consulting firm. Um, in the management consulting space, our niches as implementers. And, and what I mean by that is that almost all of our engagements have a predetermined outcome that we commit to achieving as a result of our influence. So the client doesn't just get a report or a set of recommendations. We've got to help the existing team make improvements to hit a specific number without spending any additional money on equipment or technology. Oh, interesting. So you're actually going to help optimize. Is it? Is it? Is that what it is? It is on optimization and automation? Is that what your focus would be then? Optimization without the automation. So taking the human capital that exists and just making them more effective at whatever it is that they're doing. And why not the automation side of things? And I don't mean automation in terms of robotics, but automation in terms of like apps and you know, um, you know, that kind of technical automation. It's not the basis on which the company was formed back in 1994. And as it evolved, I think we became experts in people Mm. and processes and tools to manage and other people were doing automation and doing it much better. Mm. We, We banter around the idea of whether we should bring it into the company or not. But at this point, we think we're better to leave it to the experts and focus on on what we're, we're really good at. Um, what the hell does Carpedia mean? Like, you know, every time I hear it, for some reason, my name goes over to the like automotive space all the time. Did you start in the automotive industry or? We, we started when uh, I think it was Goodwill Hunting, right? Carpe Diem since ah. they became yeah, yeah, yeah. widely known. And the t- two founders were going to name the business Carpe Diem. But within, you know, days of incorporating, stumbled across the literal translation, which is seize the day with no regard to the future. 
Oh. And as a man, yeah, exactly. Ooh, that was their reaction. So they liked the idea of the concept of carpe diem. So they took a derivative of it, which was carpedia before Expedia was even around. But I love it. Okay. Right, we often get confused or asked about uh, the relationship to the car industry for which there is none. I love that. Okay. So it is the focus on the future, which is where optimization starts to make sense. The carpet, but I like the whole, like without regards to the future, that that's amazing. All right. Now wow. I finally understand. It was a good catch. Yeah. Tell, <laughs> me about, tell me about the predetermined outcomes with your engagements. What does that mean? And how do you establish those? We go into the client's uh, business for two to three weeks and we do an assessment. So basically we get a chance to look at some part or parts of their business to figure out if there are opportunities around process tools and behaviors. And at the end of the assessment, we're able to deduce from the studies that we do, this is the amount of recoverable financial and operational opportunity that we could unlock if we move forward with what is a typically four to six month engagement. Okay. And how do you establish that? How do you establish what those savings are going to be or what the gains are going to be? And then how do you, how do you establish that? And then how do you price around that? The pricing and the costing are mutually exclusive. So um, the pricing is really given the opportunity we think we're able to unlock what's the baseline from the last year till now. And then if we get there, what is that financial impact to the business? And the cost is an estimation of how many consultants are we going to need over how much time. And and how, how do you pitch this? Who, who are your typical clients? Mid-market companies. And and how do you how do you um I guess get in their door? Mid-market companies meaning like the two hundred to two thousand employee size, is that roughly where it would be? Yeah, that would be a fair bandwidth. Yeah. And and how do you how do you get in their door? I mean, they're not quite at the politics level, but they're they're getting there. They're not quite at the level where they know everything, but they're getting there. Mm-hmm. How do you get in their door? How do you get them to or do they find you? Mostly through outreach. And we still do cold calling with a group of people uh to mid-market CEOs and say, listen, this is a unique service offering in the management consulting space. And it's still a worthwhile channel in terms of getting new business. So that that's one. Other is through speaking engagements. So like at your event next week, I get up and it's not a commercial, but I talk about the framework that we apply and other companies could apply in order to achieve those same financial savings. Um, so that's another channel for new business. And then we do have a, a marketing, uh, group that are, you know, doing value added reach outs, um, which is relatively new, but is garnering some, some success early on. How many, how many people in your business, um, do the speaking on behalf of the company? Is it just you or do you have others? Just me. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I talked to somebody about this recently, and, and I think there's a massive opportunity for companies to find a 26-year-old professional female who can speak, train them to do these good, solid speaking events, and have them on the road traveling, doing them over Zoom, but, but pay them a base of like 60 grand a year with some yeah. upside, you know, a percentage of, and they also have to do some of the follow-up with all the members just to like introduce them to the marketing departments. 
But imagine if you could have like four or five of these people around the US and Canada speaking to every Vistage group and every EO chapter and every YPO chapter and the stuff that would destroy your life as an individual. Mm-hmm. But but if you could get that team, like, and the reason I thought of it was Simon Sinek no longer does 90% of his speaking events. You know, he has other people. Tony Robbins has these Tony Robbins speakers, you know, delivering content. I'm like, shit, I wonder if that can be replicated. Yeah. It, you know what? I I think it's a good concept and there's no shortage of appetite for speakers. Mm. What I learned, I wasn't a speaker when I came to Carpedia five years ago. I got trained by one of North America's best speaking coaches. And I've learned that if you're going to go down that route, invest in help because there is what, what the good speakers make, you know, look easy is not without a lot of hard work. Um, so I, I, I don't disagree with you, but it's, it's more of an investment. But it can be done. You'd have to find a good speaker and then really train them on your industry IP. What did you learn from the speaking coach? Who did you work with, by the way? Let's give them a, a shout out. And, and what did you learn from them? Yeah, Mickey Williams out of Chicago. She is a Vistage chair. She is a force. <laughs> that is an understatement. She, can I tell you a story about yeah. Mickey? Okay. So I got put onto Mickey. I was a member of a tech group and my tech chair. I which is which is what Vistage is called in Canada, just for our listeners. Thank you. Yeah. Um, he put me on to Mickey and I sent him a video or sent her a video. And then I had a call with her and she said, Andrew, I was only able to watch 10 minutes of your video. Like you haven't paid me any money yet. But if you want to turn around and kind of part ways, I have no problem with that. But this is going to be a lot of work on your part. <laughs> And I said, well, listen, I just switched jobs to do speaking as a new channel for generating business for our company. I'm like, there's no going back for me. And uh, she took me apart and put me back together again. And it was one of the most humbling experiences of my professional life, but one of the most beneficial. I love it. Mickey and I first met um, about a year ago, a little more than that now, maybe a year and a half ago on Clubhouse. We were in this random Clubhouse room and she started talking and I'm like, damn, who is that? Like, she's just this force. And then we chatted offline on a, we did a Zoom call together and connected. She's super strong. Yeah. Um, Interesting that you would turn to that as well, because I think a lot of people don't value that continuing growth. Where else have you focused on your skills, you know, your skills as a leader? Yeah, so Mickey was a big one on the speaking side. Um, I'm, I'm constantly reading and I'm a member of a peer group in Toronto. And I would say between those two things, I've got, you know, the theoretical, here's, you know, here's different ideas and here's different approaches. But then I've got a group of people who are facing business problems month in and month out. and. I've used them as a sounding board at different times in my career. I've heard challenges and other people's perspectives on it. And I find that peer group is a really good source of learning and just growing as a, an individual. So we just started um, accountability groups or peer groups for our COO Alliance members. We've now got members from 17 countries and we're putting them into groups of five or six and they're meeting every month in between our normal meetings. What do you think... Uh, you know, members can do both in in the tech or Vistage groups or, you know, any other kind of mastermind groups they're in. How do you get the most value from a group and how do you bring the most value to a group? 
I think you get the most value by, well, it's a give and take relationship. You're not going to get value if you don't bring forth challenges that you're having either personally or professionally. And some people, that's not a comfort level that they necessarily walk right into and are, you know, able to do. But if you are able to let your guard down and be a little bit vulnerable, then uh, the feedback you can get and drawing on, you know, 10 other people's life experiences is, is huge. Um, and the giving is no different. I mean, you, you're giving people your perspective, which you've got your own unique set of experiences. And sometimes that different point of view from a way that they were thinking is takes them going from one path to another. And I mean, I've had situations where I've done a complete 180 in terms mm. of the path I was going down. And then my group telling me that uh, I should rethink what I was doing. What was that? What was the 180? Uh, I had one with um, an actual career change I was thinking of making. Um, and I just, I, I told my, typically, as, as you know, in these groups, a number of people have an opportunity to bring opportunities forth over the course of, let's say, an hour and a half to three hours. Mm-hmm. And I went to our chair and said, listen, I think I need the whole meeting. Um like if you're if you and the group are willing to do this, I would really, you know, I can't think of many larger decisions in my life than choosing two different career paths. And um, I, I want to explain it fully and get the group's feedback on it. And so we spent three hours, and uh, yeah, it, it, I, I don't again I, the value of that. I don't know how you'd ever put a, a number on it, but it was invaluable. Amazing. I, I heard someone um, this recently, t- you know, say the old the old adage of if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that we want to join these mastermind groups so that we can learn from others, but they're also joining so they can learn from us. So there's a time when we have to be the smartest person in a way, but it's not really being the smartest. It's more sharing experiences, right? Have you noticed that the more vulnerable you get or the more vulnerable that others get, the, the deeper the communication, the deeper the experiences, the, the, the richer the, um, the learning becomes? And how do you get more vulnerable? Hmm. So to answer your, your first question, yes. I mean, the, the more vulnerable you're willing to be, the better the connection is with the people. And certainly in the group that I'm a part of, there's a number of us that have been there together for long periods of times, and those bonds are... Are, are deep and strong as they've mm-hmm. gone through things professionally and personally um, that they may not be sharing with, with anybody else. Um, I don't know that there's a trick on the how you just, you just, you have to be willing to take a risk opening up and you know, right from the beginning. It's a, an interesting uh, dichotomy where think of yourself. If there are 10 people who knew each other really well, and you're the 11th joining a group, you're kind of sitting on the periphery as a wallflower waiting, like you will wait, (laughs) you know? Um, And so you just have to be willing to dive in with both feet and, uh, and know that these environments are set up with the utmost trust and respect and uh, understanding that it's safe to be able to convey these kinds of things and get people's, honest, constructive feedback. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I heard a, a comment years ago when I was joining the entrepreneurs organization and um, they said that if you really want the group to go vulnerable or to get vulnerable and go deep, go first. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting to me is that the more vulnerable I get, the more vulnerable the rest of the groups gets too. Yeah, absolutely. And our chair is very good at that too. When we're, we will do some things over the course of a year that strengthen that bond. And, and our chair is the one that will step up and say, hey, here's, here's how it applies to me and sets the stage for everybody else in the room. Yeah, it's weird. All those exercises seem really hokey until you do them as a group. And then they're like, shit, we just went deeper. That was kind of cool. Let's shift gears a little bit. Sure. Um, my son is uh, one of my one of my sons is looking at getting involved in the movie industry. Is obsessed with all things movie, being being behind the camera, like on the director side and production side of film. And mm -hmm. uh, so he's going to have to get involved in a union here in Vancouver to you know get in and be you know PA jobs and all the the jobs behind the scenes just to learn. And he asked me last night what a union was, and I kind of gave him a a very PC version of, of what I believe a union is and, and how it can provide some value, even though I'm very kind of pro-business and, and in, in many ways, very anti-union. I also think that probably in the movie industry, a union probably does make some sense because I think they are going to take advantage of people. And I think they might, um, you know, not pay their people well or might, you know, overwork them. And I think, uh, you know, people are so desperate to work in that industry and they work on a gig by gig basis. Maybe a union is a good thing. Can you tell us a little bit about your perspective, having worked inside of union businesses? Can you give us the good, bad, and the ugly? I don't, I don't think you can paint it with one broad brush. I think most unions stem from the fact that at some point in a company's history, there was fear or unfairness. But, but think about that 50 years ago and the number of hands that have you know, taken over a business. So, so some of the places I've worked where there's a union, it's not because the current owner or situation was doing something that forced this uh, conflict, if you will, between ownership and employees. So, you know, I think if you just have it in your mind that because a place is unionized, it's therefore uh, antagonistic, there's a lot of um, infighting, that's the wrong way to perceive it. I do think, like you said, in some cases, they serve a very positive function, which is to protect the employees. But it's really how there's the, the formal collective bargaining agreement, which tells you what you can and can't do, what's negotiated or not, and all the formulaic pieces. But there's also the real application of it. Sometimes people understand that in order to operate a business, individuals are going to go into the gray and if everybody's doing things for the greater good of the company then let's just do it and let's forget the collective bargaining agreement and, uh, and right. my experience is that most of the companies uh, and again these are mid-market companies i'm not talking about the large auto manufacturers and those kinds of businesses but mid-market companies that are unionized i find tend to have a higher degree of reasonableness with which there is a a give and take in a gray area where we're all in this together and we're we're all trying to do the best thing for the firm yeah would you if you were you know i know you're not out there looking for for a new role but if you were looking for a new role would you avoid union shops or would you just take a look at it as any other company and not worry about it either way yeah it wouldn't influence my, influence my decision that's interesting 
All right. And then talk about the difference now between public companies as well. Like what's it like working inside of a public company um, sphere and, and have you, you know, what did you pull from that that I guess has strengthened your business skills now? I was only in the public sector sector for a short time, but the false sense of urgency towards every financial reporting uh, quarter, I just, it, it was counterintuitive to how businesses should run that you, mm. you work overtime the week after Christmas so that the revenue is higher and your Q4 numbers are reported. All you're, you're, you know, all you're doing is pushing the problem into the next quarter. And it's this constant, you know, okay, how much can we do? And what's the numbers going to be look like versus budget? Like, this and this is my singular experience in one company, but that that nonstop um it's almost dysfunctional. Yeah, it wasn't a good way from my perspective to be running a business. I understood the why behind it, but taking a step back now and thinking about, okay, you know, I think if you were honest about where things were in every given quarter and you were getting better the next quarter because you didn't go and produce a bunch of things that are just going to sit in your yard so that a financial number makes um, makes it look like things are better than they actually are is is always going to catch up to you in the end. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It feels like it's almost like a dysfunctional machine. Um, it just forces people to you know, make decisions that we normally wouldn't make. One of the things that drives me crazy about these publicly traded companies is they're, you know, every quarter they have this one-time expense that's appeared or the, every annual, like the one-time, I'm like, it's not a one-time fucking, every year you have a one-time expense. Like every year you have this one-time mistake or whatever, or like, I don't know, <laughs> drives me bald. How do you normalize a business when you've got all of these things happening only because there's this fictitious line right. drawn in the sand as to when the financial statements have to be produced. I, yeah. mean, I, I get a kick out of it that I'll go and look into different pieces of software. And I know that if I wait until the last week of the fiscal year for the company that's selling me that piece of software, they're going to discount it by you know, whatever, because it's revenue pulled into a certain year. Totally. You're locked into that price, you know, forever. Or and there, or maybe there are minor increases, but that, that whole model to me just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And yet these companies are successful. That's the crazy thing. Yeah, I know. In spite of that. All right. Go back to some of the core of what Carpedia does in terms of the um, the optimization of, of companies. Can you give us some some baseline areas that you see that most companies could benefit from or could just do better? I know that's a very broad, or can you give us some of the the, the favorite ones that you, you notice normally? Yeah, I, I think there's probably two. Um, one is that most frontline and mid-level leaders have been promoted as good doers. And they get put into leadership positions. They get showing how to fill in a schedule or complete a time card or do an employee evaluation, but they're never trained on how to be better leaders. And that truth, I think, exists to varying degrees in every organization. So we spend a lot of time in most of the engagements 
getting them to be less reactive and more proactive. And then with that proactive time being more effective at actually making what they're responsible for, whatever the department is better. So we teach them to analyze a process. We teach them how to put in place KPIs to give them um, a better picture of what's actually going on in their department. And, um, and then, as I said, free up more of their time to be able to continuously make that process better. And then how do you, how do you focus them on, you know, which processes to focus on, which, which ones to spend their time and their energy on? Cause there's so many different areas to go after. Do you look for the ones that are easier to put in place or do you look for the ones that are, you know, going to give the highest return on time? Where do you go there? It's basically a, a four box with exactly those two things on the axis. So what's the payoff, high or low? What's the time investment, high or low? And basically assess every opportunity that you could possibly spend time on, on those two variables. And then obviously low investment, high payoff are the ones that you want to go after. But even that, like that's easily said, do you know what I'm saying? But, mm-hmm. but not all frontline leaders take a step back, right? They, they get, someone says, well, there's a problem over here. So today they go and they, spend three hours trying to figure that out. And tomorrow they're, you know, they're in their completely playing whack-a-mole trying to chase the problem of the day rather than taking that step back and truly assessing, okay, in what priority should I be doing things to get the most benefit out of the, the department? And, and so I, I've talked about this a, a bunch and I said that, you know, people talk about strategic planning. I said, there's no such thing. There's something called strategic thinking and then there's business planning. And for me, the strategy and the strategic thinking is taking time to think about the business this way. And then once you've thought about it this way and you've made some decisions, then the planning component comes in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like companies take time to step back and pause. How do you advise companies to do that, You know, to, to take time? And I think as they get more seasoned, probably as they get truly more medium enterprise, like in the thousand, you know, they have a, a a leadership team that's built companies before they are more strategic. How do you advise companies that are maybe not so early stage, but smaller, becoming medium size to take time to be strategic, take time to think? I mean, my answer is going to maybe sound too simple, but it really is a precursor. In my mind, when you sit down to create a budget, and, and I'll say most small firms do in some way, shape or form, but there are some that don't. But when you do that, if you haven't thought strategically first, then, then you're probably just taking last year plus 10%. And that's not a, that's not a plan, right? So with, with clients, if they're at that stage and they haven't done that first strategy thinking piece, that's not built into the cadence when they say, Hey, you know, our fiscal year starts on January 1st. We should be doing our budget in October. It's like, no, no, you should be strategically thinking about what direction you want to go at least six to eight weeks in advance of that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just building another piece into that whole financial planning system that, as you say, often is missing in those smaller firms. Yeah, what I try to get people to do is to think strategically about their business in September, where they have their strategic planning, you know, their strategic thinking meeting or planning meeting in September, October. And then they go into the budgeting and the real final planning parts into October, November. So December 1st hits, 
they have their budget for the following year. They have their operational plan. They've got their goals. They've got their, they can kind of figure out the meeting cadence to actually support all that. But um, yeah. I guess it's maybe more the entrepreneurial companies that are still winging it and shooting from the hip and kind of, you know, throwing shit at the ideas as they scale. And, and as a company gets into the more medium enterprise, they are operating more with a plan and that cadence already, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And you know what gets in the way most often to that thinking? The entrepreneur. And success. Mm. It's the companies that are successful without those mechanisms are the ones that are least likely to, you know, think they need any kind of structure or process optimization. And it's completely counterintuitive. They're not thinking about it in terms of what the possibilities are. We could be so much better if we had these things. And it sometimes it takes an event to trigger, a, you know, that openness to there being a different or better way of doing it, which is unfortunate because sometimes that event can be avoided. Well, and, and in many ways, I guess they also just like, we've always done it this way. It's worked so well. Why should we change? Right. Well, because mm-hmm. the business has actually changed as, um, all right. Talk to me a little bit about the team of people that work with you or that report to you. How do you grow them? How do you develop them? What are you focusing on? You know, you mentioned the leadership skills. Are there any specific ones? I, I built a, a suite of 12 of them into my investing your leaders course, but I'm curious as to what you have for, what do you focus on for growing your people? Well, I'm in charge of the sales and marketing group uh, at Carpedia. And, you know, I think sales gets a bad name. <laughs> even even me saying I'm part of a sales team, you know, I think a lot of people's minds go to the, the car salesman. And what we're talking a lot about is just how you connect and have human conversations with people. How can you add value through the exposure that we get to business leaders from all over North America, uh, whether that's connecting people or just things we're hearing or things we're seeing. And mm-hmm. I think that's a change for people who have been brought up in a sales environment, right? How can I get that meeting booked? What, when can I get them to you know sign up for an assessment? That Those things will happen if they think there's value in what we do. And so it's a, a real change, I think, in the thinking about what what is our role as business development people? Is it to try to sell people something or is it to try to add value? And so more of the conversations that I'm having internally are about adding value, right? Like, and forget the sales. They'll come mm-hmm. or they won't come. They'll be in need or they won't be. But you're much more likely to have someone see how the services you offer can provide them value if you're more focused on just creating a relationship and finding ways of helping them. Yeah. How do you sell against the other consulting firms that you compete against? And do you compete against the, you know, the, the, the bigger brand, the bigger names in consulting, or are you more in a niche? Yeah, we run into them. I don't know, once out of every 10 potential engagements that we do, but that, that outcome is a differentiator. So mm. if people want someone to come in and give them a set of recommendations, then that's what the big firms do. If they want someone to see it through to the end and to be, you know, putting their necks on the line to a certain degree for an outcome, then that's what we do. Uh, but most of the time, it's not a competitive environment. It's either the current leadership team thinks they can do it on their own 
or they're willing to invest in a third party to help them. And um, how do you guys say no? How do you say no to the wrong engagements? How do you identify mm -hmm. where somebody wants to give you a, you know, a good fee, great consulting fee, the right check, and you're just like, yeah, wrong deal? Or do, do you say no? So, so we do um, two ways. That initial assessment we do is as much about fit, two-way fit, as it is about establishing what that outcome and the ROI is going to be. Um, and it doesn't happen very often, but there are times when in our past where we've walked away after having done that assessment because we don't think there is a fit. We don't think the client's ready to make the amount of change that we think is available. Mm. And there was another instance there uh, where we walked away. We give our clients a five-day out so that even throughout, us or them can, can nullify the contract. But ultimately... The metric that's most important to our business is our referral rate. So 94% of our past clients are willing to talk to other clients about the positive experience that they had. Wow. And that, that trumps, like that trumps whatever thousands of dollars in fees that we might collect because one negative and the ramifications of that are you know, years uh, of impact. Now, you said that they're they're willing to talk to someone else. Are you actively working with them for referrals or are you just making sure that you have a really strong base of clients so that any prospect, you put the prospect in touch with them then, I guess, to, to increase your, your closing rate? We will if we have a potential client that wants to understand from a, an, a past client's perspective what the experience was like. Our past clients, like I said, 94% of them are willing to do that. Um, we do use uh, referrals with our current clients as a means of growing the business as well. It's interesting. We used to, uh, I'm making a note on that. We used to do that in the 1-800-GOT-JUNK days. We would have our potential franchisees talk to our current franchisees. And we realized like, our current franchisees were busy and we were growing so fast that our current franchisees didn't have time anymore. So we did a group call and we had like eight potential franchisees talk to two guys, you know, over the course of a half an hour. And um, it was amazing. It's like, cause our, our new, you know, our current franchisees leveraged their time and our new ones didn't yeah. feel like the only idiot buying from us. Cause now it was like eight prospects, you know, all hearing the similar questions and, they didn't feel like it was such a bad thing for them to join. It was a really cool model. Mm -hmm. I, I like that you're doing a similar way. It's interesting you say that because we're pretty, we don't have past clients going out every week talking to potential ones because of that protectiveness. Like the, their time is valuable. Yeah. We're, not, we're not using them as a channel for marketing. But uh, if someone's really close to buying and that's the, the difference, then there are people that are willing to take time out of their schedule. I, I won't say which franchise it is, but it's very close to where you live. And these are, it was the biggest franchisee at, or partner at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. He got a call one time from a franchise prospect and the prospect said, you know, what can you tell me? And our franchise partner said, I can tell you I'm really fucking busy. Call me back when you have real questions. And he, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, dude, you can't say that. And he goes, I'm really fucking busy. The guy was unprepared. Like, yeah, you're right. So we he was we, right. He was yeah. right. <laughs> so what, what I learned from that was we turned to our franchise prospects and we said, here's the basic 10 questions you should be asking yourself and could be asking others. 
but yeah. add to this list. But if you're going to do a, you know, get on this group call with our two or three franchise partners, at mm. least ask them these questions. So yeah. we, we, we kind of briefed them, but we also seeded it a little bit. And we also gave them the most important questions that A, they should know, and B, that we wanted them to hear the answers of, right? All right, Andrew, what advice would you give the 22-year-old you? If you were going back to yourself, 21, 22 years old, you're just getting started in your career, what advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today? I think if you, if I were to say to myself, as long as you are willing to continually learn and have a high degree of grit, that things will work out. I, and again, that's easy to say as someone who's you know, much past 22 now. Um, but there was a lot of angst about, is this the right thing I should be doing? How are things going to work out? And the world has a funny way of working. You know, I think treat people nicely. You give as much as you take. And in the end, yeah, things end up evening out. It's really weird, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. The world does have this really weird way of just lining up and making it all happen. Andrew Rush from Carpedia, I really, really appreciate the time that you spent with us today sharing the insights and the expertise and looking forward to having you on our, um, our CO Alliance call next week. I'll send you off details. We'll find a time slot that works well for you. Thanks for sharing. All right. Thanks, Gary. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.